Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, February 8th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Lots to get to on this episode. A flurry of moves after we recorded our Friday episode with Britt. Naturally, that's how it goes. You plan a podcast for midday. All the news happens late afternoon. A few days go by and, well, we're still excited to talk about it anyway. We're going to get to those news items and a story that Eno put together with Ken Rosenthal about some changes to the baseball before we dive into part two of our outfield preview. Eno, how's it going for you on this Monday? It's good. It's good. I actually had a friend over. What's that like? Yeah. One friend. Um, and uh, we watched the Super Bowl together because we hadn't seen each other in person for months. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't remember a damn thing about that game. I, <laughs> you didn't miss with, anything. Uh, and like, uh, I guess I missed all the, um, I missed all the commercials, but they're just commercials. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was a moment where <laughs> in the past I've been like. I think I'm watching this from the commercials, and I yell at my kids when they're just sitting there slack-jawed watching, like, an <laughs> E-Trade commercial. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Keep moving. Well, I'm impressed by uh, E-Trade's ability to rivet your children. That's that's getting them it's real young if they're getting eight and six-year-olds. Moving images on a screen. <laughs> Flashing numbers by really quickly. Throw on yeah. some CNBC for your kids. They'll stare at that for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to some of the news. The the game was a bust. I I mean, look, even if you wanted the Chiefs to just keep it close, you were disappointed, right? I mean, you could love Tom Brady and say, I want Brady to win, but I want a good game. You didn't get a good game. You got the Brady win that you wanted. Um, I was on the opposite side. The Chiefs were going to roll if any one of those teams was going to win easily. So I was just disappointed that we didn't get something more competitive. But Trevor Bauer lands in Los Angeles. And we thought maybe Anaheim, but the Dodgers come in three years, $102 million, I believe, with two opt-outs, one after each of the first two years of the deal. So the way it all stacks up, $40 million for Bauer in 2021, $45 million if he stays in 2022. And I assume if he's pitching well, he's going to opt out after that second year and go get more money than what he would get in that third year. So it is kind of the hybrid funky contract that we were expecting, but I didn't really see this coming at all because the Dodgers didn't strike me as a team that needed to go out and add pitching at all. Yeah, I mean, when I ranked the rotations um, before all this happened and after the, the, the Padres trades, I had the Dodgers ahead of the Padres, even though the depth charts, you know, projections at the times had the, had the, uh, the Padres ahead. Um, I just thought that the Dodgers had superior depth. And this was before they added Bauer. I thought with May and Gonsolin at the back there that, you know, no matter what happened, the front four, they went six strong and they were better better equipped to deal with, you know, depth issues than maybe the Padres, who would have to then lean heavily on either Mackenzie Gore, unproven, uh, Adrian Morahan, sort of weird fastball shape, but otherwise looks good. Um, so I just I just really liked Man Gonsolin. I guess shed a tear for Man Gonsolin because I don't know. <laughs> now it looks like uh, not only did they add another quality pitcher, but they added one that is known for bulk. Um, yeah. And so now are Man Gonsolin just spot starters when Clayton Kershaw's back hurts? Or you know does Price hit the ground running, or does he need some time? And then they come in, but. 
What's also hard is that May and Gonsolin are at that period in their development as pitchers where you're just not sure you know how to use them because you want to keep them stretched out because they're star- like they have starters arsenals they had the ability to be starters but the immediate need the immediate best use for them would be in the bullpen so you're kind of stuck trying to do what with what i feel like if i had to make a guess and this is a guess and i'd love to hear your your thoughts on this my guess is that may stays in a kind of a bullpenish role because they love that velocity and they love that 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 sinker and that 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 Blake Trinan esque sinker that like you know that Bruce Dark Ratterall esque sinker they love that in the pen and that Gonsolin is the guy that pitches in middle relief and pitches two or three four innings at a time and 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 tries to stay more bulkish but um, I immediately pushed both those guys down from I was high man on Gonsolin and May maybe I was near the high man I was I had him in the top 50 I pushed them back to 75 80 because now they're six and seven starters they don't even have a role yet yeah I think what we have now is it's a situation similar to what they used to have with Ross Stripling you know I think Tony Gonsolin is effectively the new Stripling I would agree with you that I think he's more likely to be the long reliever, which gives him a quicker path to the rotation if someone gets hurt or is unavailable. And May probably works more in a three, four, five, six out at a time sort of role. And they could always move May into the Gonsolin spot if Gonsolin goes to the rotation. And then if another starter goes down, May eventually gets there. But it definitely hurts both of them in terms of where you want to draft them and and how you can roster them in, in different formats. I mean, if you... Think back to a couple of years ago, if you played in a mixed league that was deep enough to roster Stripling, then you can still roster Tony Gonsolin. But putting him in that 70 to 80 range, maybe among starting pitchers, seems appropriate at this point. I think one thing that works in the favor of maybe both of these guys over the course of the season doesn't help us from a fantasy perspective in the short term. Outside of Bauer, every one of the Dodgers' other starters brings, I think, more than an average amount of injury risk between Kershaw, Bueller, Price, Urias, all four of those guys, I think, are above average in terms of their likelihood of missing some time. So it could be worse, um, but I, I do think with May in particular, he's really tough for me to draft right now, not knowing exactly how they're going to divvy up the rules. But based on what I expect to happen, I'm much more likely to take that chance on Gonsolin, stash him away, get some quality innings out of the bullpen, hope to vulture the occasional win, and inevitably, when there's an opportunity, he's going to fill it. I think the other thing that is kind of a bummer, just in terms of dreaming on the potential of Trevor Bauer, I wanted to see the chaotic start on short rest all season. You know, I I wanted to see that. But the Dodgers, outside of maybe messing around with the schedule a little bit to give somebody else rest, probably aren't going to do that more than once or twice all season because of the depth they have. I mean, there are plenty of other places that Bauer could have gone and there would have been an obvious need for him to be a higher volume starter. The Dodgers simply are not one of those teams. Yeah, I can't imagine it. They they could do something where they almost have a six man rotation, but but Bauer's on a four man rotation. I think I the other starters would hate that though, right? I mean, like, well, if you you could try to keep them all on regular, and Bauer goes on four, I mean, because there's days off and stuff. They, like, if you really, really wanted to manage the schedule, <laughs> you could maybe pull something like this, where you say, 
you know, okay, who who's it most important to? Okay, Kershaw and Price. You never want you want to you know you guys want to do it every day, every fifth day. You want to be like that. We'll keep you on that. Uh, Bueller, what do you want? Okay, uh, you want to throw in some extra rest days. Okay, May and Gonsolin, you are now in the rotation. Weirdly, you will pitch once every ten days. <laughs> and Bauer, hmm. you will pitch twice every you know every eight days. You could. I, I've seen some like people trying to like trying to skin that up basically but um it's also asked a lot of the personnel it's uh it ignores kershaw who's like i mean you could say okay well kershaw's gonna pitch every five days that's fine but it does it doesn't ask his input i mean maybe you maybe you could go to the pitchers and be like are you guys interested in doing this but i don't think you can sort of unilaterally force this upon them and just be like well bowers here so he's pitching every fourth day and you guys just fall in line all right <laughs> that's not happening. yeah well, so you mentioned that you dropped Gonsolin and May in your rankings. Did you alter the ranking for Bauer with his move to the Dodgers? Because a lot of pitchers, if they go to the Dodgers, the way they use pitchers, the way they develop pitchers, which is obviously a little less of an issue for someone his age, he's kind of already figured out some things for himself. Usually we look at going to the Dodgers as a positive coming from a lot of places. Did it move the needle at all for you with Bauer specifically? No, I've got Bauer in the top 10, and um, I've seen some arguments for moving into the top five based on wins, wins projections. You know, they, they should win. They should, you know, that bullpen should save you the games for him and, and continue, you know, like a good staff overall is good for the people within the staff, too. Uh, but... Um, I have Bauer's c- command number as the worst in the top 25. You know, wherever Tyler Glass now is. <laughs> and so um, I think that matters. I think that that is a source of variation year to year beyond or, or that we've seen. We've seen it. We've seen it go from year to year. We've seen his walk rate oscillate. We've seen his home run rate oscillate. And even if, you know, he's found a new level of of uh, excellence, which I think he I think he has, If the, I think. I think it's safe to assume that whatever he was doing last year to achieve those movement and velocity numbers, that he'll continue to do those next year. And if those if those movements and velocities are to be believed, then I believe he has some of the best stuff in the game. So I think he's now in a class with you, Darvish. I think I put them it's very similar. Have a lot of pitches, have a lot of movement, have decent velocity, don't always have the command. Yeah, I think that gives you an idea of just how good things could go for Bauer. It just I still find the 173 ERA in just 11 starts, I feel like that can be very misleading, right? If you're projecting him, you're probably coming in somewhere closer to, what, 360? ATC's got him at 367, Zips is 360, Steamer's 402, the Bats 401. So if you split it, 380 is kind of where you'd end up. I mean, I think he can probably come down a little bit from there i would have a i'd have a better number in my head just based on that stuff um and and, and there's a there's been a, a large change in stuff you know in the last last year so he almost belongs um w- with someone with a, a shorter track record according to, like in my opinion i understand that projections will call back but i don't think that necessarily bauer pre-slider is super relevant to Bauer post slider. And then to the same extent, I think that Bauer pre massive spin rates on his fastball <laughs> is a little different than 
you know, post massive spring hits on the fastball. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a track record that isn't good, but I don't think that, um, I think in pitching in particular, it's hard to reduce like, like let's just, okay, let's take the name off it because the name is, is, is controversial to people. Let's talk about you Darvish. You Darvish, uh, has oscillated. He's had bad seasons. He's had good seasons, but now he's found this cutter, right? Mm-hmm. And the cutter seems to be a pitch that he can command. He can use as like a as a fastball, basically as a command pitch. How how much of the bad do we have to bring in for you, Darvish? I think it's more almost injury risk than bad performances. Because I think the key difference for me, and and maybe this is where a track record with different skills is manipulating my thought process too much. Darvish has. The 4.95 ERA and the 143 WHIP in just 40 innings in 2018 as his ratios outlier. Whereas mm-hmm. Bauer's got what five seasons with an ERA over four. That's doing all of the stuff that he thinks is important in training, right? That's him right. trying to push it and be at the forefront of technology. So I understand the argument that last year was different, and you know, with extra grip, with the pine tar, with extra spin, that is to some degree sustainable. I also agree with the premise that the projections are going to fail in an instance like that. But there's a big difference from the 2020 numbers to most of those pre-2020 numbers, and that's where it's so hard to make that decision. And I think when you're looking at price on both of them, they go right next to each other. They're among the pitchers that you're going to see at the end of round one, beginning of round two. Part of the reason I have a little more faith in Darvish, too, is that the walk rate has been excellent, really since the middle of 2019. Like That skill, that was always kind of the the missing piece with Darvish. There was the one flaw other than maybe some injury risk. And he's really done a lot to erase that. So I think you're right to put him in the same boat. I have Darvish. I have Darvish one ahead of Bauer. So I, I agree with you on a lot of things. And, you know, the market has spoken too. Um, in some, in some regards, they go, they go right next to each other, Darvish and Bauer. But I allowed, since their command and stuff numbers were so similar, I know Darvish has a higher injury risk, but I did allow the projections to split the difference. I do have Darvish ahead of Bauer because the bat projected uh, Darvish as the fourth best starter and uh, Bauer as the 13th best starter. But I personally feel like they're closer together than that projection suggests. So, I mean, I guess I guess I'm trying to walk the line of like agreeing with you sort of, but also trying to advocate a little bit that his stuff has changed. I think what's going to happen, though, for me is someone will always get Bauer before I could get him at the end of round two, for example, right? If I think he belongs at the 2-3 turn, he goes to the 1-2 turn, I'm just not going to get him in snakes. Auctions will be different. I generally am having a hard time biting on the second round starters. Like, I believe, actually, in the first round starters, DeGrom, Bieber, and Cole. Those are the only ones I believe in. Bueller, you know, is my second round pick uh, for a starter. Um I can see some uh, discussion to be had about how many innings he'll pitch with everybody, but also with Bueller in particular because, A, they have built-in, ready-to-go guys like Gonsolin and May to, to, to give him the blow when he needs to. B, he's had blister issues. Uh, C, he hasn't like built up necessarily the perennial 200 innings pitched kind of uh, workload in his past. Um, I think in a season where all of the re- workloads will be reduced – his 160 or so innings pitched 
will be just fine. And um, so I'm, I'll take him fourth. But then when you get to, um, you know, Castillo, Darvish, Bauer, Giolito, and, and I'm the high man on Woodruff, um, I'd rather just wait to see which of those guys made it to me in round three, I think. So it's pretty interesting. It's not like you and I sit down and go, where are you going to put Woodruff? Like I, I threw him, I had him at six among starters when I put out rankings. I had him that high ago. and then I, I just felt embarrassed and like by the by the market i got embarrassed by the market to push woodruff down to nine i had him at six at some point well it just it goes to the point though that there's not much separating sp5 from sp13 i I think you know giolito for me is at five nola's at 13 i think the top three are their own tier they they seem like very solid bieber degromicole like they're just very solid pitchers you know, no real red flags. Then, yes, I agree with you. That sort of four through 14, 15. I mean, from Luis Castillo to Jack Flaherty, I, I think I had Luis Castillo and Jack Flaherty rank right next to each other last year. You know, and now they describe a 10-pick drop. Uh, that's another sort of tier for me. And then when you start talking about Carrasco, for me, other people have him higher, but like Snell, Hendricks, Berrios... Those are like second pitchers, third pitchers. Yeah, clear, clear twos and threes for sure. Yeah, uh, Flaherty, I think, is interesting for me just because I, I see the results from nineteen and twenty put together: three twelve ERA, one hundred one WHIP. That WHIP puts him fourth among starters during that span. Backed by Command Plus, like he definitely has great command. Yeah, and you don't have the. 33 plus percent K rate that you're going to get from DeGrom, Cole, or Bieber, but you're right in line with the near 30 percent K rate that we've seen from Bueller and that we've seen from Woodruff, right? And you're you're getting a slightly better walk rate than we've seen from Lucas Giolito to this point, and you're getting a guy that's in a very pitcher-friendly environment on a team that got a lot better by adding Nolan Arenado, too. So uh, with Flaherty, I mean, I know he hasn't he hasn't done everything all at once over a full season, and maybe I'm just buying way too much into the second half in 2019 when he was just totally lights out and ridiculously good, but he's in my top 10, definitely one of the guys I'm targeting if the top you know, four or five are all off my radar because of where I'm picking in the order or because of how things break in an auction. Uh, we got one mailbag question about Gonsolin from Ryan. Do you think I should try to trade Gonsolin now in a keep forever dynasty league targeting someone like Austin Meadows, or should I hold on? My thought is if you get a player like Meadows for Gonsolin, you're doing really well. You're kind of buying low on Meadows, you know, top 30-ish overall sort of player this time last year, still young. With Gonsolin, I think as much as you like Amino, and as much as I can see him becoming a top 30, top 40 type starter with the opportunity, we may have to wait a year or two before that happens. And some of that's opportunity, but some of it's also a few of the flaws we saw in the postseason too, right? I mean, I think we we saw that he's not necessarily locked in to being that good start over start, outing by outing just yet. I just changed my ranks. You you convinced me a little bit on Flaherty. I moved him up a little bit. I made a compelling argument. I'm <laughs> happy to have done that. Uh, I think. I think if if it was on the table table for me, uh, Meadows for Gonsolin, I'd take Meadows. Yeah, I think you're getting enough of an upgrade there where it's worth it for sure. Is is it a good time to sell him? Generally, no. Uh, I think that would be a good return to get Meadows right now. I think. Uh, I think that that's probably. 
off the table. In fact, uh, before my ranks came out, uh, I, I identified a bunch of players that I was going to be higher on than consensus and made offers in a couple of my dynasty leagues on all those players. And, um, one person had Urias and Gonsolin on the same team and, um, talks died really quickly because they just said, no, I, I need them this year or whatever. Um, and, uh, it's funny. Urias and Gonsal, I would have paid, I might've paid a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, glad, uh, glad I didn't do that. Yeah. Timing is everything, but thanks a lot for the question, Ryan. That's definitely the type of trade you should make if it is available to you in a dynasty league right now. Let's talk about Marcel Ozuna. He goes back to the Braves, I guess by default with a free agent. A lot of times, if I think there's a good chance they're going to return to the team that they previously played for, I don't really move them to a different spot. Like What I'm saying is I, I don't assume a better or worse environment. I assume the same environment, and we got that in the case of Marcel Ozuna. Maybe things get messy in 2021 if we don't get the universal DH because if Ozuna has to play in the field, then Austin Riley can maybe get squeezed for playing time, but I still think we're going to have the DH, so I'm not sweating that all that much. I think Ozuna, we talked about him a little bit on our episode last Wednesday, part one of the outfield preview. He just kind of falls into this range where you're you're kind of choosing the masher hitter that doesn't run at all, and that player group seems a little bit undervalued in snake drafts as people push speed up in the in the draft order a little bit you know the the Luis Roberts and the Randy Arenas sometimes get pushed ahead of guys like Marcelo Zuna who can do pretty much everything except for steal bases for us yeah it's funny to see uh that Ozuna stole 12 bases in his free agent walk here with the Saint with the Cardinals but then on the one year deal with the Braves, he didn't he didn't take one chance. I was gonna like be like, well, what if yeah. you know people in free agent walkers steal more bases? That would be interesting. Um but he's kind of a one man refutation to that. <laughs> um I, I tend to believe that like uh two things that he that he conquered some sort of slice that he had. Uh, there was a time when he was barreling the ball at sort of nine to ten percent of the time and wasn't getting the results that you'd expect because there was something a little bit off with his barrels, and it may have been some interaction between how he hit the ball and his home park uh, because he's you know before Atlanta he'd never really uh, hit in a home park that was neutral, um, and uh, so I think there's some sort of coming together of barreling the ball the most he's had in his career getting rid of a bit of a slice in, in there um, and then also playing in the friendliest home park uh, that he's been in. Um, all those things kind of seem sustainable. So I don't know. It's interesting to me that the bat is the low man on his ISO, um, but uh, still gives him 35 homers. I think if you take the steals away that are projected, I think uh, something like 280, 35, 36 homers and a couple steals uh, should be should be easy for him to do. How about this? Better 2021 season from a fantasy perspective. George Springer with the move to the Blue Jays or Ozuna staying in Atlanta? I'm going to go with Springer. I think because Springer, um, he gets a little bit of a homer boost, but he I just think he'll steal more bases. And... Uh, I think there's a tiny, tiny bit of injury risk around Ozuna that is hard to kind of nail down, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, I I think straight up from me, and this is probably Derek Cardi's tweets getting into my head a little bit too much. I'd still take Springer over Ozuna. Again, I kind of ranked Ozuna, assuming Atlanta was the most likely place uh-huh. he'd end up, and I didn't have to bump him up as a result of that move. They were right next to each other before, and I think they're both relatively good values. Uh, I'm thinking back to something you said last week, at least I think it was one of the episodes last week too, where when a player returns to his team as a free agent, mm. the production doesn't seem to tail off as much, right? It seems to be a better investment for the team. It seems to work out better because that team knows the player really well and decided to bet on that player's longer That's an old match sports finding. I don't know how it applies when it's not been your player since day one. I think... Uh, some of that was kind of extensions and stuff. And then on top of it, like I think it was written kind of around the time that Ryan Howard got extended. <laughs> so uh, it's obviously not uh, something you can nail down all the way. But, I, you know, they they have access to the medicals. So they've seen whatever it looks like on the inside of the shoulder. They've seen his day-to-day work habits. Um, and they re-upped for... One like one of the more impressive contracts that they've given out that this current Braves regime has given out, right? This is the Braves regime of one year deals, um, and uh, so they they made a bet on this guy in particular. Um, that could be a good sign. Yeah, I think they just expect him to mash over the life of that deal, and uh, after the CBA for sure, of course, he'll be a regular DH for them, but. I would not be at all surprised if Ozuna can reach those projections. You're looking at low to mid-30s home run totals. You're looking at 100 RBIs pretty much across the board, 90-plus runs scored, and a good batting average to go with it. So absolutely a a good core player to have. Going right around, was going in the like 45 to 50 range in a lot of drafts before re-upping with Atlanta. Maybe he ticks up a couple of spots in ADP as we get closer to March, but I don't think he's going to jump up all that much. You've got, I thought, I would have guessed, do you, do you know, are you looking at it? Which one of these is younger than the other? Ozuna's younger than Springer, yeah. I think. Is that not at all surprising to you? Springer went to college, though, yeah. that's why. No, it's just because Springer was a UConn college guy. But uh, despite that, I think um, I'm calling for uh, Springer to age better. And I, you know, I have some evidence for that, you know, basically uh, sprint speed. We've talked about that a fair amount. Yeah, playing up the middle is yeah. a big part of that, right? I mean, if you're playing center field as opposed to a corner outfield spot, that generally projects to age more gracefully. Your athleticism should hold on. Springer was longer. 83rd percentile for running last year, so uh, that's pretty good. Uh, Ozuna, without looking, I can say, was not. <laughs> what do you think he was? I wonder if he's one of those guys that's faster okay, than we realize. What I'll do you look. think Ozuna was? <laughs> <laughs> I should I should be fair. Hey, I got torched by Clint Frazier's defense last last week. I, I said there's no way he'd be the kind of guy you'd think could be a, a finalist for a Gold Glove. And I looked, I was like, oh wow, he's actually good based on outs above average. Well, last there was year. the whole thing that he couldn't. The idea was that his eyes were moving. That he was he's a heel striker, like he's a he runs on his heels, and that was that was bugging his eyes out when he was trying to catch the ball. Who knows if any of that's true. Uh, 62nd percentile for Marcel's, oh, 58th percentile. But hey, that is better than I would have expected, actually. When, when I, when I think yeah. of Ozuna, I think of, it's like slow and plotting, basically. So, 
58th percentile. Maybe he'll age better than I He is kind of in like a a steady decline. Check it out, though. If you go back to 2016, 76th percentile. 2017, 72nd percentile. 2018, 69th. 2019, 63rd. And then 2020, 58th. So he's losing a little bit every year, but that's that's normal for the type of player that he is. As long as he's not in the 25th percentile in a year or two, he'll be fine. Yes, the warning signs come out in the sort of 20th, 10th percentile. That's, That's when... That's when defenses start playing you differently. But this is still a good proxy for athleticism. And his the state of athleticism with Zuma is just slightly lesser than the one for Springer. We got one more topic transaction-related to get to. The Rangers and A's hooked up on a trade. Elvis Andrews now has a mm-hmm. place to play. Chris Davis ends up in Texas. Uh, Jonah Heim goes to Texas as part of that deal. This is a pretty cool trade, though, because it unlocked a lot of things for most of the major league players involved. I mean, I think Chris Davis might actually hurt Willie Calhoun's opportunities to play now that he's a Ranger, but Elvis Andrews was going to be more of a utility guy, maybe the favorite to start at third base, at least to begin the season in Texas. And now Oakland's going to try and just squeeze at least one more productive defensive season out of him at short and lean on him heavily as their replacement for Marcus Simeon. Because I looked at the organizational depth chart, you know, there's really no competition for playing time at shortstop as it stands right now for Elvis Andrews. Yeah, yeah. He's not super compelling in any other way. <laughs> yes, a lot of other things have, have eroded as it pertains to Elvis Andrews' skill set. Yeah. You know, we're just stuck on the sprint seed thing, so I kind of want to just, uh, uh, like, I'm going to run it through for these guys because it's kind of interesting. Chris Davis had the hip injury, and he was never fast, but he was 40th, 50th percentile po- uh, before the hip injury. And uh, the last two years, he's gone down to 24th and 19th percentile uh, sprint speed uh, with the hip injury. So I, I, and then you put that in the hand in hand with his, uh, barrel rates, his batting stat cast numbers, and see that um, his barrel rate went from consistently in 14 to 17% to 10% in 2019 to 8% in 2020. So you see this, uh, like, maybe athletic sloughing off uh, that's happening, right? Um, you know, his K rates and walk rates don't tell the, don't tell the story, but uh, there's still something in the quality of contact and his ability to run, Uh and of course, you'd make a bigger deal out of this, except that Elvis Andrews has the same problem on his end, um, and it's affect. It's more important, maybe possibly, because it's affecting his his uh, his fielding. Elvis Andrews went from the seventy second percentile in twenty fifteen to thirty fifth percentile last year. Um, so that would make him one of the shortest, uh, one of the slowest shortstops. It says here forty third. Slowest, 43rd fastest shortstop in the big leagues. I have a feeling that he's not going to steal 25 bags. I don't think he will either, but he was 46th percentile in sprint speed in 2019, and yeah. he still stole 31 bases that year as a 30-year-old. That's a good point. So, I mean, he's risky because of his age and because of the physical deterioration of his, to- of his best tool at this point. I think it's fair to say that. But the other weird thing with Elvis Andrews he doesn't strike out that much. He's always been good at putting a lot of balls in play. And he's kind of quietly increased his average exit velocity from where it was pre-2019. So there's stuff that's been kind of going the wrong way for him. There's a couple little things that have gone the right way. I don't think he's going to be a good real-life player. I think he might be a surprisingly useful fantasy option 
now that he's unlocked a lot more playing time following this trade. So I don't know if you're going to want him in like a 10-team mixed league or anything like that. But if he hit seven or eight homers and stole 18 bases this year with a decent batting average, that wouldn't surprise me. He's probably stuck in the bottom third of the lineup, though, with the A's. If you think back to Elvis Andrews at his peak, those are some rebuilding Texas teams where he was pretty high up in that order. Yeah. He's going to... I think you might be right. I think he might be like a... Fairly to really good mono league uh, pickup, like an AL only play. I could see that because the, uh, they don't really have a great other option. That's another way of looking at things in terms of like who's going to play instead of him. Uh, the only person I can think of if people want to go the prospect route is Nick Allen. Uh, there's not much information on him, but he did get a um, he did get a an invite to uh, spring training. And uh, he last played in, in high A in 2019 and was 22% better than the league average there. So uh, good walk and strikeout rates and stuff. And then apparently was was dealing at the alternate site. So that's the sort of dynasty, you know, possibility angle. Uh, but on the current roster, I don't really see an A that uh, should take the job away from Andrews. I don't think machine although he has a top, top level name. <laughs> I mean, it's a plus, why, plus would, name. Would, would, would you, why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want a machine at shortstop? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't think that machine really has the bat. And I don't think Chad Pinder has the glove. Um, Sheldon noisy also, I don't think has the glove. So you don't really have uh, a ready-made solution. If Andrews doesn't work out. I think there's a couple of ways, though, that the A's are a little more interesting right now. Second base is wide open. Tony Kemp, to me, is just a, a nice bench player. He's not a guy that should play all the time. So Sheldon Noisy could end up playing a lot at second base. If you want to be excited about him, look at what he did at AAA in 2019. I think he's one of those guys that could offer a lot of cheap power and maybe have a bigger role than expected. And then I would say uh, Austin Allen. If you're in a two-catcher league... They got Aramis Garcia back from the Rangers as part of the trade. He was a, a backup in San Francisco for a couple of years. He has some power, a lot of swing and miss in his game. I think Allen, Allen's more interesting though. Injury history for uh, Garcia too. So he, I, I think he could end end up starting the year on the DL or something. I mean, he's coming off a shoulder thing. Yeah, it's like Allen was a player they acquired in the Jerks and Profar deal last winter, and they've got the DH spot unaccounted for now with Chris Davis. So whether they're going to go out and I think I saw people on Twitter saying Edward Encarnacion would fit really well there. I mean, that's something that the A's have been doing for years. <laughs> you know what, right, right? Like they had mm-hmm. Frank Thomas. Do you remember that? They had Frank Thomas. They had Mike Piazza, dude. They 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 love picking up the so I think that's I don't even know. I don't I have no inside knowledge, but yes, <laughs> I think Edwin Encarnacion's gonna be uh an A. I think that's that's our <laughs> a lock, a lock, you wanna put it down. Uh, but, uh, yes, what happens at second, I think is, uh, potpourri, uh, is sort of throw them all out there. And I think Nick Allen could be uh, in it for that. So you're talking about Nick Allen, Sheldon Noisy, uh, and Tony Kemp being the sort of fallback plan. And, uh, the reason you don't want Tony Kemp is it's a minus minus bat, you know, he'll get on base and that's it. Um, and he's a guy who can get on base calmly. He'll be above replacement. He might be a one win player, but, Two wins is where you're trying to get. That's league average production, and they're trying to get there on the super cheap. So, um, in any case, uh, I think the other real winner uh, might be Jonah Heim. 
Yes, I like Jonah Heim quite a bit. I think you've got pretty low K rates. He switch hits, so it's possible that he could take over the larger share of the playing time behind the plate in Texas. There's a little bit of power in that bat. Just the kind of catcher that might actually play a lot and not hurt you, which is nice to have in the pool. I think some people really like Sam Huff. Huff made the leap from high A to the big leagues during the shortened season. He has a ton of swing and miss in his profile. If I'm sitting here a thousand miles away from the Rangers' decision-making process, it certainly makes a lot of sense to send Sam Huff down to double A AA or triple A, at least to begin the season before bringing him up. And even if Huff does end up on the big league roster, I'm not sure he's necessarily a two-thirds or three-quarters share of the playing time sort of catcher. I think Heim's actually much better off here because with the A's, Sean Murphy was going to catch a, what, 110, 120 games, so Heim was going to get 40 or 50. At least in Texas, it could be an even split if not something that favors Jonah Heim at this point. Yeah, and I think I think the, another way of saying it, uh, is the, because I'm agreeing with you, is that Huff has more upside um, if he puts it all together. He has more offensive upside. Um, but, uh, so therefore being, you know, 23 years old and having more upside, that seems like an argument for getting it all together in the minor leagues while they play the guy with less upside at the beginning. Um, the other thing that I can add to this discussion is that pitchers have told me they love throwing to Jonah Heim. So, uh, if there's any sort of question about Sam Huff's defense abilities, game calling, that sort of deal, then, you know, with a minor league season in, in, in place, that seems, um, like an easy way to go about things. Um, but anyway, either way, I think uh, a guy who makes a bunch of contact uh, like Heim does and is easy to throw to, um, you know, Eric Longenhagen also made the point that he's a 6'4 catcher and a switch hitter um, and a catcher and that all three of those things often lead to late uh, breakthroughs. So if you're looking at the projections and not feeling it, uh, just do some mental math, add 50 points of ISO um, and, and, and see how it looks then. Um, now you could be talking about a guy, uh, with a 240, 250 batting average. Um, and you know, depending on the play, but like in full season play for a catcher, probably like 20 homers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that could be really interesting. So none of the depth charts projections, none of that really captures all of that. Um, so could be a good play in deep leagues. The last thought here is just the Rangers depth chart being a bit more crowded now when you start to look at all the different positions there. If they were to go something like Dahl, Tavares, and Gallo left to right in the outfield, that means Willie Calhoun and Chris Davis are working in some kind of tandem or battling for spots as the DH. I mean, Calhoun is a lefty, Davis is a righty. Maybe they platoon out of the DH spot initially. Maybe if there's an injury in the outfield, so Calhoun. for a 26-year-old to be with, yeah. with Calhoun's track record. I still think he has the upside. I, I think it would be kind of sad to, to platoon him, but at least he's a lefty swinger. And I think I think with Dahl being so often hurt, I think you're basically talking about Dahl, Calhoun, Davis for, three, uh, for two spots. Yeah, that's probably how it goes. Yeah. All right, so let's get to our next item real quick. The changes to the baseball. I haven't even seen this story yet. You were telling me before we started recording that you and Ken Rosenthal had a piece that went up on Monday. What is going on with the baseball now? Yeah, uh, it it was a, a thing this weekend. Um, <laughs> you're never really uh, fully off the clock. But, um, you know, so what what's different about what's happening now? So baseball is actually 
announcing a change to the ball, basically. And they did it internally, but they when they do a memo like this, they have to know it's going to be leaked, right? So they, they, they sent a memo to general managers and equipment managers basically saying the ball will be slightly deadened this year. And the reasoning for it is they have a very long sort of wide range for the coefficient of restitution. So that's the bounciness of the ball. They have a wide range. In fact, when I was looking, I was really surprised because it's much wider than the range used in the KBL. Um, And so they have this wide range and, you know, the ball has been bouncy like on the level of getting closer to the high end of the range, you know, Um, and that's fine because it's within the range, but, uh, you know, Rawlings said that they found a way to, to change the way the ball was constructed so that it would more reliably show up in the middle of, in the midpoint of this range. Um, and that would, might lead to less variation year to year in terms of what we see on the field in terms of bounciness of the ball and so on and so forth. Um, nowhere in this discussion or this email or in any of discussions with baseball, have, has anyone told us what the dragging implications will be? And the way the ball has flown, drag versus the way the ball bounces, the core, um, uh, has has also wildly oscillated the last few years. It's been the major difference between groundbreaking seasons like 2019 when we broke all the home run records and then sort of, you know, 2018 took a step back, you know, 2017, we broke them the first time. So it's hard to know, you know, if this is just another year where it'll be different on that level, or if they deaden the ball so much that we're going to go to like 2014 uh, pre live ball. But from the numbers they gave the, from the sense that we gave, they gave, they said, you know, one to two feet off of a 370 foot fly ball. That's what they would lose. Um, if you do that sort of math and you go back and you look at what's happening, I've been told that we're going to lose maybe 5% of the home runs in baseball. Um, you know, that we're talking about sort of a 3 to 5% drop in home runs. Um, we're we're going to notice that. You know, it's going to, I think we're going to notice that. I think that the ball will be noticeably deader. There's, there's, it's going to have some effect on drag because they changed the properties of the ball. So it's possible the ball you know, has less drag and flies better, but bounces less goods and stays about the same. Um, but I just think it's notable for one that they're announcing this basically, um, that um, they're trying to be uh, transparent in their own words on this, on this situation. And yet um, there's this, just this weird, there's this weird process stuff. They didn't talk to the rules committee about it because it's not a new ball. Um, but they did talk to the competition committee and, um, is another weird thing is like Rawlings made a bunch of these balls and, uh, baseball was like, Whoa, no, no, no. We got to test them first. Well, baseball owns Rawlings. So <laughs> why, why is baseball in the memo? It says we had to direct Rawlings not to use these in the games. Why, why did you have to, you are Rawlings. Yeah. That's strange. Why did Rawlings make you a bunch of balls? And you told him, no, no, we can't. What? So uh, as they are more transparent, there's still questions about the process that they underwent. And the major question for and for us, I think the major question in, you know, in fantasy in particular is just uh, what is this going to do? Um, I tried to uh, take a list. I took the list of uh, people projected by the Bad X to hit more than 25 homers. And then I sorted them by the, sl- the shortest home run distance. And number one is Didi Gregorius. And I, in fact, think that he's the sort of player that would get hurt the most. 
you know? Guys who hit 25 homers by sneaking it over the wall in certain places, right? That requires the ball is lively. They're in the certain place. You know, the, the every, we've talked about this before, DD, right? Like his homer production is very tied to what parks he, he lives in. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that DD's up there. So that 25 homer production, um, you know, if you apply a 5% reduction in homers across the board, then you're not going to take more than a homer or two away from him. But maybe he actually only ends up with something like 20 homers this year. Uh, but the rest of the list, not as obvious. Anthony Rizzo, Cattell Marte, Mike Yastrzemski, Anthony Santander, Francisco Lindor, Mike Moustakas, CJ Crone, Kyle Tucker, and Kyle Seeger. So there's some, there's some darlings on that list, you know? Um, Yastrzemski also sticks out because one of the things they did during COVID was close the windows um, in San Francisco uh, on the floor. There was like these places where you could there was sort of you could just be walking along the park and you can just look in. Have, have you do you know about this? I've have seen, seen them seen on that? TV. I think yeah. Yeah, there's some parks that do this where just have a little bit of a place where you didn't have to pay for a ticket. You can see, you can't really see that well, but you can you know, see some some ball for free, basically. They had closed those off because they didn't want people congregating there. So uh, when they closed those off, it changed the wind. And that, along with the new walls and the the reduce, the reduction in Triples Alley, you know, that could have been fueling a lot of Yastrzemski's power. Now the ball is deadened, and post-COVID, are they going to open up those windows again? Are they open, opening up those those gates so that you can, so the air can go through? And if that happens... Will we see a, a larger reduction in power? I I would mentally reduce Yastrzemski's projected home runs down to that sort of twenty two twenty three level. I think. Um, so those are some guys that I thought uh, should be highlighted in this situation. It's a really interesting way of of looking at it because yeah, I would agree that I don't think everybody is going to be equally impacted by this. Alex Bregman pulling the ball the way he does might be. You know, more impacted as well. Just think of other types of players. He's on the top twenty-five. Yeah, Bregman's there. Jose Ramirez. But Lemayhew, Eddie Rosario, uh, not Lemayhew for some reason. That is surprising. Where is Lemayhew? Is he short on the home runs? He might not be on oh, the he list. Might not because be, the he might not be. He might not be projected for twenty-five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he didn't get. He didn't get in my list. But uh, you know, Marcus Simeon, Eddie Rosario, Cody Bellinger is sixteenth on shortest home runs. Hmm. Reese Hoskins, 15th on shortest home runs. Eloy Jimenez. So, um, apparently there's a small bias in the data for people who play in parks with short home run, um, short wall distances, because I think sometimes the the distance is marked as like sort of like over the wall, you know? So, it's not that distance is not as hard a stat as maybe people want it to be yeah it's a little more subjective than it really should be in Statcast, it's listed as projected home run distance just to so give that you could a sense lead to some issues here yeah. and there but really interesting stuff we'll be sure to link that story up in the show description so people can check that out are you struggling to close deals B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, 
and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash rates23. That's linkedin.com slash rates23 for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash rates23 and get started. Let's get to part two of our outfield rankings. We left things off kind of in the... 125 to 150 range. We'll kind of pick things up there. Mostly, as you get past the 150 range, you're just looking to fill certain categories. That's the best thing about the outfield each and every year. No matter what you are looking for, you can probably find someone who helps you in any one of the five categories and some players that might actually help you in three or four of the five categories as you move even further down the list in the outfield. For me, that's one of the cases against having too many outfielders in your early round foundation because you might need the flexibility of addressing any one of those categories by filling out multiple spots in your outfield with someone who steals bases or someone who hits for average and scores lots of runs because of where they hit in their lineup, right? No matter what you need, you can generally find it there. First question for you, you know, as you start to look at the back half of the draft, or at least after those first 10 rounds, do you have any obvious value outfielders that you've been targeting very heavily or that you're planning on targeting very heavily as we get further into draft season? Uh, there's a there's a couple different categories. One is uh, good and young and and probably fine. So like you know projected bounce backs from people like Austin Meadows, uh, Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson's Statcast uh, numbers were fine last year. Um, so you know that if the projected bounce back comes from a younger player, then I'm into it. Um, and then there's the um, projected bounce backs. I don't believe necessarily. Uh, but the price has become so low on these players that I end up with them, which is, um, you know, Mitch Handiger, I think is young enough that he's in between these two groups, but, you know, also older where you wouldn't want to just take his projected bounce back as gospel, especially after two surgeries and, you know, basically two years off. Um, I, but he's super, super cheap. And then Justin Upton, I'm not banking on anything from him, but he costs zero. Um, I got him in a best ball as my eighth outfielder, I think. Uh, it was a 12-team league, but still, that's a very low cost. And as far as I can tell, he's going to start as long as he's healthy. Yeah, I think in leagues with at least 14 teams and five outfielders, definitely makes sense. I think you start to get into a tricky spot like in a 12-teamer, especially a 12-teamer where you only have three starting outfield spots. I don't know if those leagues are deep enough to value what he brings yeah. to the table, but he should hit probably, what, fifth or sixth in that lineup. He still has power. There's some batting average downside, but we draft similar players 100 picks earlier, 200 picks earlier in some cases. So I do think Justin Upton still has something left in the tank. I think the, the Angels making that deal to add Dexter Fowler is probably a little signal they're going to give Joe Adele as much time as he needs in AAA, which is kind of disappointing, but it's not totally undeserved either. I mean, I think you want to be able Fowler, to... 
keep things afloat until he's ready and not have that added pressure to bring him up before he's clearly figured out triple-A pitching. Yeah, and Fowler won't won't block him if he if he takes off, you know? I, I right. think um, Fowler's a good enough uh, player to start the season with and uh, a bad enough player to quickly transition to sort of fourth, fifth outfielder style uh, if Adele comes up. Yeah, so I think as you look at the beginning of this group, Dylan Carlson is one of those guys who's carrying a pretty steep price tag. It was not quite the rookie season that I expected from him last year. There were definitely some growing pains. But you look at the Cardinals at the very end of the year, where they were hitting him in the lineup, how little they've done to add to their own outfield, it makes you pretty confident they believe he's going to be a big part of their plan not only in 2021, but obviously much longer. The projections are okay, not great. 19 home runs, 10 stolen bases from the bat X, a 246, 318, 414 line. But this is a, a broken record sort of position for me. When a player comes up and debuts and strikes out a lot and doesn't walk a lot and puts up an ugly slash line over a partial season, the projections generally don't look that good. The factoring that in for Dylan Carlson, 19 homers and 10 steals actually is a pretty good projection. And mm-hmm. I think there's a very good chance that he goes over on every one of those slash line numbers, over 246, over 318, and over 414 right away in 2021. Yeah, yeah. I think the the evidence is that um, you know his projected strikeout rate is, is higher than it would have been at any level um, in the minors, and, except for back at rookie ball, basically. Uh, that the translation of AAA uh, strikeout rate to major league strikeout rate these days is almost a one to one situation, and he had like twenty two point eight percent strikeout rate in AAA. Not a lot of PA, but um, he was there on that one. And then on top of that, um, you know, his uh, ability to discern balls and strikes is pretty good. He already had a better than average reach rate in his first season, um, and that's a, a good sign. He's not. He's not a free swinger, and I actually like that. You know, uh, I like seeing forty percent uh, swing rates and twenty-four uh, percent reach rates. That does not seem to suggest to me that he's going to strike out thirty percent of the time. So um, I think the strikeout rate will be a big portion of his uh, breakout. If he once he starts getting that down, the balls will fall, the power will come, um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think he can now produce those projections. I just also enjoy watching him. Um, and I think that he's got a little bit of a sense of when to push and pull and, uh, that he's got adjustability in there. So, you know, the soft scouting type stuff, I think favors him. So the one problem is like, what's his ADP, you know, you're saying that it comes with a cost already, right? He's going around pick 150. So he's the 41st outfield eligible player off the board in NFBC leagues. It puts him next to Michael Brantley who has, I think, a very mm. safe batting average floor, lots of run production. Not really going to steal much for bases at this yeah. point in his career. Like You want those 10 steals. Yeah, and here's the other one, like another kind of would-you-rather, Dylan Carlson for 2021 only or Anthony Santander. Like Obviously, keeper in Dynasty, we've been miles ahead with Carlson for a while, but when someone like Santander exceeds expectations and gets to play in a very hitter-friendly environment and does show some interesting skills growth. I mean, look, shortened season or not, cutting your K rate from 21% to 15%, that will get my attention. And we're not talking about a guy that 
in the last two seasons combined has swatted 31 homers in 130 games. So I think he's Love that a, home park. <laughs> a little bit of a flawed player, but everything kind of lines up for him to get all the opportunities to continue playing every day in a pretty good situation in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you take a homer or two off for, for them being short, um, you know, having a full, you know, full 600 plate appearances in Baltimore, uh, sign me up, man. Even if I think Trey Mancini hits too many ground balls, I'm signing up. Like getting hitters in Baltimore is, uh, you know, and also like getting fringe hitters for cheap in Baltimore. Like remember Renato Nunez, like this thing, this usually works out. So, um, I might take Santander there. The projection also is a powerful argument for Santander. The bat gives him um, a top 40 outfielder designation with $11 and puts Carlson, by those projections at least, as more of a 55th, 55th ranked outfielder. A lot of space in between the two. And though I think Carlson can outperform those projections, you're asking him to outperform those projections by $5, $4. Um, and that's just putting a lot of that means you're paying $11 and maybe getting $11. Whereas you paying $11 for a Santander, you might also get $13. You know, that's how the variation goes. Um, so I'll take Santander there. Uh, Carlson over Brantley. I'm taking Brantley too. So as much as I like Carlson, the price is uh, pretty high on that. Yeah, there's a good chance there's someone else I like more still sitting on the board when I have to get Carlson. So I can see myself ending up with him in auctions, but not in snake drafts. I mean, I've got Kyle Lewis, who goes about 15 picks ahead of him. I've got him just ahead of Dylan Carlson for 2021. Ian Happ's in this range. I think Ian Happ is going to put up numbers that are just as good with probably a little more power this year than Carlson. So that's where I think Happ has a little bit of a short-term advantage. I've got Brantley a decent amount ahead of Carlson for 2021 only. I think some of the injury risk that Michael Brantley had a few years ago has faded He's not high risk anymore. He's more of like medium risk. And I think with the run production and the difficulty of finding good sources of batting average in the middle of late and middle and late rounds, that makes me very interested in Michael Brantley in this range too. You know, and another thing is um, there's a, a group of players that Carlson is in that represent about the same opportunity to outperform their projections, about the same age and job opportunity and even about the same homer and stolen base potential combination as Carlson. And and those names are Nick Senzel, uh, Kyle Lewis, and Rymel Tapia. So if you've got a list with Nick Senzel, Dylan Carlson, Kyle Lewis, and Rymel Tapia on it, you can lose Dylan Carlson and make that be the canary in the coal line, coal mine and be like, okay, my guys are all about to go, right? And then hope that by the end of the the half round of the round that it takes to get to you, uh, you don't lose all four. This is another pro Reds take. I must just love the Reds secretly. I think Nick Senzel is one of the most underrated, undervalued players in the entire pool right now. I think it is reflected in the projection. You're getting power. You're getting speed. You're getting a decent projected batting average. But I think there's a great chance of Nick Senzel coming in quite a bit higher than his batting average. I mean, we're under 20% in the shortened season. He struck out 24.4% of the time in his debut. He has a good idea what the zone is. Yeah. And you're talking about a guy that had a 55-grade hit tool, according to Fangraphs, going into 2019 with a future 70. 
that's the kind of profile that wildly exceeds batting average projections. I just like that he can do a little bit of everything as well. And, and the cost is so so good. Under the hood, he made better swing decisions. He swung less overall, but he swung it more at pitches in the zone and less at pitches outside of the zone. And those are the kind of underhood process numbers that lead to a reduction in strikeout rate, but also sort of support it, right? They tell you he was doing the right things. It wasn't just he struck out one day, one one time less in a game, and that was that changed the whole sample. You know, this is more like no, he was he was, he had a better sense of what was going on in the zone in 2020 than he did in 2019. An often injured player like this putting it together in the third year wouldn't surprise me at all. And the projections, the reason I named all those guys is they're all projected for basically seven dollars of value in a 15 team league. So it's kind of hard for me to be like. As much as I like Carlson, I like Senzel a lot, and like I kind of like Ramel Tapia. Like as much as I don't like Ramel Tapia, there's a lot of things speaking for him. It's not necessarily all his own making. Like just like playing in Coors, and then finally, I think uh, having a full time job, but also having cut his strikeout rate um, and still showing that speed. I think this could be the opportunity for him to hit ten homers, hit two eighty to two ninety, and now steal thirty bases. Slightly different shapes than the guys around him, but also uh, maybe more interesting because of the the stolen base uh, addition that he brings. Um, I like all those guys in that group, and I don't like any m- so much more than the rest that um, that I'll have to that I'll spend the extra three or four bucks or spend the extra round on it. I think kind of bridging the gap between Senzel where he's going right now in the geez the two eighties like that's. That's going to go up. He, he's going to creep up. People are going to just keep looking at that profile, and they're going to get more and more excited about having him. So if he jumps 50 spots or even 75 spots in ADP going into the final weekend of drafts, that wouldn't surprise me. I don't think you're actually even reaching that much if you take him at, at pick 200 or somewhere close to that spot. There's a lot of uh, accumulators jammed in in between. A lot of guys that are kind of either low average, big power guys, or kind of balanced, uh, I want to say like Adam Eaton types, even though Adam Eaton himself is going a little bit later than this range now, but that's usually where players like Eaton go. The the double-double guys, 10-plus homers, 10-plus steals, an everyday job. I think Brandon Nimmo maybe kind of fits into that description a bit. Andrew Benintendi has fallen into that group. I mean, Benintendi, look, as much as he disappointed everybody in, in the shortened season, he barely played. And I know that my previous expectations that he could maybe be the next Yelich were a ceiling that's probably unfair to put on him. That's just an error in my judgment. That doesn't mean that he's without value at this point because even if Andrew Benintendi just levels out and the player he was in 2019 is his true baseline, that was 266, 13 homers, 10 steals, 72 runs, and 68 RBIs. Outside the top 200, perfectly fine with that and there's room for more there's a chance he bounces back and either gets back into the 20 steel range or maybe he gets back to 20 homers he had 20 homers way back in 2017 so I'm, I'm definitely giving him a pass on an injury shortened shortened season 14 games in 2020 from Andrew Benintendi you could pretty much just throw it all completely out yeah I think he 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 fits in that sort of Austin Meadows group of like Guys, where the projected bounce back isn't—they're young enough where I can believe the projected bounce back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I don't want to depend on a projected bounce back from a 32 year old or a 33 year old that we've, we've, we've cited that research a lot, but I just don't, I don't think it's a good idea. That's, that's too far along the bell curve. But when a guy has a down year in before he turns 30, you know, 26 to 30, yes, 26 to 30 is post peak, but it's also not like way down the step ladder. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. they should be able to return to 80% of their peak or 90% of their peak, um, provided they're healthy. So yeah, I, I, I Benatendi's one of the uh, players that the bat X likes better than, um, uh, than steamer relatively the most. So, you know, Benatendi is going to be on my, on my list, uh, of potential sleepers, potential value picks. Um, and I think he belongs there in the same way as uh, Mitch Hanniger belongs there. Yeah, Hanniger makes a lot of sense. Lineup position is going to be good. You're not worried about playing time now that he's completely healthy again. Uh, it sounds like he goes into spring training with a clean bill of health. We had Corey Brock. He covers the Mariners for the Athletic on Fantasy Baseball in 15 on Monday morning. And that was the first question Al asked him. You know, Can we expect Mitch Hanniger to enter the season healthy? And at this point, that appears to be the case too. So I'm, I'm with you on Hanniger being very logical for the volume alone where he's been going right now. What are you doing with Joey Gallo this year? You know, he's at the earlier part of the range that we're talking about. ADP is about 160 since the start of January. Uh, I think he fits into our our group of players. You got to do something a bit different to build around, but are you generally excited to get Gallo there? And we know that comes with having to make some preparations to get a little extra batting average to offset it, but do you think he's generally undervalued at his current ADP? And he must be. He's a first pager by uh, by projections. <laughs> I had to I had to click back a couple. I was like, "Where's Joey Gallo?" Um, I don't think that he's actually. You know, somebody's making some reference to you know in my article the you know the comments or on Twitter or something saying like, "Oh, Joey Gallo, better watch out." But like, um, that's not what how I think of Joey Gallo's skill set. I think of a guy who hits the ball really far and really hard. <laughs> And has the best barrel rates in baseball since he got in. Like they, they could call it the Gallo rate um, <laughs> at this point. But uh, it's all about strikeouts to me, um, and and batting average. So it's just about whether you can fit him on your team. Are you punting batting average? Are you going to mitigate it? Uh, if you're in a in a shallower league, I would suggest mitigating it. I think that you could probably put together a, a string of three or four guys hitting 290 plus to to mitigate him. Uh, but it will take that. And that's why in deeper leagues, if you pick Gallo, I think you have to punt batting average. I think it's that strong of a, an effect by himself. Like imagine you're in an AL only league and you buy and you buy Joey Gallo, then you have to buy three or four more guys that hit two ninety just to offset the difference between the your league average uh, batting average. How many guys like that exist in the American League? I think the, the cool thing, though, about where Gallo's going right now is that you can find out if you have the batting average foundation first. You know, you can mm. use him as a way to make up that ground if you go average heavy and you, maybe you get your speed and average together. and You go, yeah, you know, I, I don't really have anybody on this team who's going to easily hit 30 home runs. Oh, well, I've got Gallo. And Gallo's if you have available. enough batting average, you get enough padding, you're not giving that up. If you have two or three guys who are in the 280, 290 range, you're totally fine. If you only have, like, one guy that's projected to be really good batting average, then you're going to be more potentially like middle of the pack or the rest of your roster will ultimately determine where you go in that category. But I mean, I remember before DJ LeMay, he was really good. 
just a couple of years ago when Joey Gallo was more expensive and LeMahieu was even, I think, cheaper than Gallo at the time, our friend Todd Zola all the time would just say, if you put those two guys together, you're basically going to get 25 homers from each of those roster spots with elite run production and a batting average that projects out to be about 250 or 260. And that's perfectly fine when the average cost is like a seventh round pick. And if you think about where they go now, it kind of it's moved around, but it still works. It's a soft 250 or 260, though, because you are not allowed to make any more Gallo mistakes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's like sure, those two balance out, but then you you can't go lower than 250. Everybody else has to be above 250. Yeah, you don't want to have the risk of too much of their weight to take away the advantage you got from LeMahieu. So, yes, that can work, but I... I personally feel like you would. I would want to have two or three bats to mitigate Joey Gallo, not just one. I don't think it would be quite enough, um, just because I don't think you win the league with that batting average. But but uh, it's doable in certain leagues, and and it doesn't have to necessarily be a bunch of guys who hit three thirty because there aren't those guys. But if you took like who are some guys that we can think of? Brantley is the first guy who, who comes to mind. Brantley is one that you'd get like right before you make that pick too. Uh, I would say. If you, if you had Jeff McNeil in your foundation, if you took one of the elite of the elite bats like Soto up top, if you had him Charlie already. Charlie Blackman is cheap. Blackman is relatively cheap for batting average this year. He he definitely helps. So if you started out with like Mookie or Juan, like Mookie or Juan or Juan Soto or Mike Trout, if you started out with one of those three and then you mm-hmm. added one of like uh, Charlie Blackman or Jeff McNeil or Char- or Michael Brantley as your second outfielder, then I think Gallo would be a really good third outfielder, actually. And the cool thing about this is you could still just be fine not getting Gallo. Uh, you could end up with Miguel Sano. I-, I think that's a very yes. similar sort of profile. So I just think this is more of a, a decision tree sort of route that you want to have ready if you need it. You know, If you've built up enough average, you're light on power, I think you can justify Gallo or Miguel Sano at their respective prices, but that's the type of roadmap you should be following if you're going to do that. And keeping your batting average high does make these guys more valuable later. Keeping your batting average high means that you can pick Jock Peterson, you can pick Ian Happ, uh, you can pick Justin Upton, uh, you can pick Kyle Lewis, and you don't have to worry about their batting average projection. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's 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 definitely an, an argument for keeping your batting average high as long as you can at the beginning of the draft. Some other interesting players in this range are prospects, guys that haven't even debuted yet, too. Alex Kirilov, we saw his debut in the playoffs, but he hasn't played in a regular season game yet. I look at where he's going. ADP's 266 since January 1st. That puts him in a cluster with Mitch Haniger, who we talked about earlier, with Mark Canha, who's one of the most difficult players in the pool for me to figure out. Even though He's not expensive, so it's okay if I can't completely figure him out, but... You have Yasiel Puig, who needs a team. John Birdie, who I run away from at every turn, and he's faster than me, so he can catch me every time. <laughs> uh, Garrett Hampson, who I would take instead of Birdie because he's in Colorado. Kanha, and then Kirilov. It's a weird, weird cluster. But that is I look, really weird. I look at Kirilov as a type of player that you can you can have one or two players like him. Like if. If you think about what it costs for Dylan Carlson, like it's nice to have the exposure to the big leagues that Carlson got last season. At the same time, if I can get the high-risk, high-reward sort of pick 100 spots later in Alex Kirilov, I'm tempted to just wait and 
go after Kirloff instead. And I say that knowing that Kirloff's probably not going to steal bases, and Dylan Carlson probably will. Uh, but just from a relative risk versus price standpoint, are you more comfortable with Kirilov and players like him in the late 200s, early 300s than you are with Carlson up where we're passing on the Brantleys and, and those types of players to get him? That's, I mean, that's the general point I was trying to make with that grouping, right? It's like the, that Tapia, Lewis, you know, Carlson grouping is like, you know, these players all have similar risk and similar opportunity to beat their projections and be more productive than their projections suggest. So, you know, why pay the most for this group? I think Kirilov, you can put him in that group. I think he's a, he'd be like the last one in the group. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just because... Tapia's going to probably steal more bases. Carlson's probably going to do a more balanced line. Uh, Lewis had great, great, great batted ball stats. Um, you know, there's there's a little bit more of a strong argument for each of those other young players to keep them above um, uh, above Kirilov. But I think I, I, I'd be okay with putting him in there. I, I wonder how big we want to make this tent, though. Um, because there's obviously between Kirilov and Carlson... Uh, Carlson being the most expensive of this potential group we're putting together and Kirilov being the least expensive, that there's different sort of machinations, different risks and rewards. So would you include in that group someone like Christian Pache? Or is he so much more risky that he's more of a flyer and a bench piece? I see Pache as more of a flyer. I think he's fantasy-wise short-term actually, again, bring back Adam Eaton, kind of like that sort of player where he might exceed some expectations with power, I think speed's going to be his best fantasy asset. He's probably stuck in the bottom third of the Braves lineup all season. Uh, but one of my favorite players in the pool has been stuck in the bottom third of the lineup and done a lot of damage as a young player, and it's Victor Robles, right? And I think with, with Pache, we talked about him when we were looking at the top 100 rankings that Keith Law just put out, and I might have overlooked how good Pache was in 2019 at AA for a 20-year-old. You know, I think it's easy to get caught up in something like 8 for 19 as a base stealer and go, oh, that's disappointing. He got caught more than he was successful stealing bases. Mm -hmm. And that might even blind you from the fact that he hit 11 home runs. Christian Pache hit more home runs in AA as a 20-year-old than he hit at every other minor league level the previous three seasons combined. That's a pretty interesting breakout for a guy who's a gold glove defender in center field, which locks in playing time. I mean, the projections are pretty kind to him. 260, 308, 413. 308's a tick low, but 14 homers, 10 steals. Isn't that pretty similar to the Dylan Carlson projection we were just talking about a few minutes ago? I guess so. Slightly different shape. More strikeouts, fewer walks, less power, but it's funny how he gets there. And it kind of almost like a low-rent Buxton. I get a bit of a low-rent Buxton feeling. I think that with Pache, you look also, the first two years he played pro ball, he didn't hit a homer. Right, but he was 17 and probably rail thin, right? He's not he's not very big currently. Still, right. still kind of adding to the frame at this point. Well, all right. I mean, maybe he belongs there, uh, <laughs> Elon Kirloff, or maybe we make a second group. And we make a second group of like, hey, these guys are you know, a little bit more risky, uh, but also kind of are in a similar group. If, they, if we make a second group, we can put Kirilov in it. We can put Pache in it. I think I would say I, I'd personally put Sam Hilliard in there. Um, maybe somebody like DJ Stewart. 
Uh, they're slightly different ages and shapes and stuff, but definitely some risk. But DJ Stewart has the great um, stat cast numbers. Sam Hilliard has uh, some stat cast numbers going for him. The strikeout rate makes him risky, but now looks like hopefully like, you know, going to play a lot. Um, so, you know, all, th- all four of those guys, I think are, you know, ideal for me. Like I would love to put them on my bench, you know, and just be like, all right, I'm going to put you on my bench for the first two weeks and see how, you, how often you get played. Uh, are you a four times a weeker or five times a weeker or seven times a weeker, you know? Um, and that'll be as, as important to me to keeping me on my, on my roster as anything they're doing results wise in the field. So here's how my brain works. Uh, Leody Tavares got up last year in Texas, and their outfield's a bit more crowded now than it was at the end of the season. But I think they still see him as their center fielder of the long-term future. I think he's got every opportunity to take the job, keep the job, and just be the guy all year in 2021. And I'm not going to touch him. I can't at the price. There's a 200. <laughs> there's a 200 pick difference between Leody Tavares. And Christian Pache in ADP. They're basically the same guy based on projections. And when you look at what Pache did at double A compared to what Tavares did at double A, both guys really young for their levels, it's really easy to choose Pache based on that track record. To me, that matters more than Tavares getting 33 games in the big leagues last season, whereas Pache got two plus the playoffs, right? Like it's easy to look at Tavares and just go, oh, well, he did it a little bit in the big leagues. I don't think he was there long enough for that experience to make that much of a difference. Without that big league, like without that big league production, like if you even gave him three homers instead of four, I would posit that his power projections might be even worse than Pache's because Leody Tavares had years where he didn't hit a homer. You know, mm-hmm. uh, well, not quite. He had one in all of 2016, but he had, you know, he has a similar really light ISOs in his in his past, and he's projected for a certain amount of power just because he hit four homers last year as, as far as I can see, because 2018 a ball 0.086 ISO 2019 a ball 0.082 ISO double a 2019 0.110 ISO. Then he comes up, th- has a 33 game sample where he's a 0.168 ISO in the major leagues. Now he's projected to be 143 ISO like, right. Doesn't quite add up. Also that park is not looking like a good place to hit yeah. for power at all. So yeah, like he might put the ball in play a lot more than he did as a rookie. I think that's a, a reasonable bet. But he might be the kind of guy that gets the bat knocked out of his hands for a little while, even though the exit velo numbers were okay last year. 88.9 is not bad. That's not any sort of blue right. ink alarming sign. It's not as but, bad as Oscar Mercado was when we should have known. Right. I, I just I, I look at that and I go, wow, they're a little crowded in the outfield. They've sort of punted on outfield defense before. If he falls on his face, he's going down to triple A. Because Leody Tavares didn't play at AAA. He spent a half season at AA and then debuted last year. So Pache, to me, can struggle a bit at the plate. And because of his glove, just be the 8-hitter, be the 9-hitter if we have the universal DH. And just stay up in Atlanta all year and put up pretty decent counting stats just by virtue of being there all season. Yeah, yeah. And just to like drive your point home, I think if I just... Sometimes it's useful to kind of just like try to try to like clear your mind and then just be like, I'm not looking at any numbers right now. What group does he belong in? And I would, I would say that Leo Le- Tavares uh, belongs in the second group that we were building. Yeah. He belongs in the Pache group. Yeah. Like there's no doubt about that. And ADP has them miles apart from each other for reasons that 
I can't fully understand. Minor league stolen bases, I guess. I mean, you see some pretty nice totals from Tavares, and he might be that kind of player in the big leagues, but I think we're we're assuming a little bit too much if we're taking him just inside the top 200. I think Pache is your, your perfect eat this, not that alternative. You want that that young player that could get a lot better and provide a lot of value. Pache, where he's going, makes much more sense at this point. Uh, we've got fallen prospects kind of sprinkled in here. I mean, the guy that I think we got to talk about before we go is Jared Kelnick because he belongs in the first group. He's not quite as expensive as Dylan Carlson just yet. He hasn't debuted. The Mariners are at least going to wait a couple of weeks to bring him up because service time's a big deal and Kelnick's going to be a superstar by most accounts. Are you comfortable with Jared Kelnick where he's going right now? Because you're not paying the Carlson price. You're paying more like a pick 200 sort of pick. And guys in that range are a little more risky as a group. I mean, you got Randall Gritchick on the brink of losing some playing time. Victor Reyes going a little earlier. I think he's toolsy and interesting, but obviously has some downside. Chris Taylor, J.D. Davis, Austin Hayes. Like I, I think this is a pretty nice spot to take that first risk. I think it's a fair price for the payoff you could get. Yeah, um, you know, he's the... He's a weird one where the uh, ceiling belongs in the first group, I, I fundamentally believe, because I think he's a top five prospect in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So the ceiling belongs in that first group of youngsters we were putting together. The floor belongs in the second group uh, because the floor is he doesn't come up for the first two weeks and then maybe he gets hurt in, in, in the minor leagues and he's not up for another two or three weeks or maybe he struggles a little bit at first and they say, oh, we just need more time. And, you know, they, they start playing the service time games and then all of a sudden he's not up till July. And then if he comes up and struggles at all, then maybe they send him back. You know what I mean? Like it's we've seen this before, like Joe Adele, you know, we've we've seen this. Um, Kellynch doesn't quite have the same strikeout rate uh, situation that Adele did, but um, we, we've seen this this thing before. I don't where he's going right now. I feel okay with saying, okay, I'll take him now, and I can get somebody as good as Austin Hayes in the next round if I if I feel nervous. But what I also think is that players like this, top five type prospects, get a lot of helium as draft season goes on, and I normally find that they're uh, price too high for me right if Kalnick gets close to dylan carlson's adp by the end of march especially in high stakes leagues like that's dylan carlson right take carlson he's going to be up right away and you're not stuck waiting and risking the possibility of waiting a month or six weeks it could be two weeks because i don't think he needs to prove a whole lot to be ready but like vlad got hurt the the jays were going to wait vlad hurt his quad or his hamstring we had to wait a couple extra weeks. It's very frustrating to be in that spot. Uh, and I think when you also look at this, <laughs> Wander Franco has an ADP. It's almost 100 picks later than Jared Keldick right now. Hmm. It's the same kind of problem. I think if you I'm going to choose one, I'm going to take Franco. You don't see the place he's going to play, but then you you don't see the Willie Adamas trade coming either right before it happens. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, and if the Adamas trade happens in the next couple of weeks or this week. No, it'll, then it'll blow up. Franco's ADP goes up a hundred spots immediately, like it, yeah. it, it, and maybe 150 by the time we get to late March. Maybe he's the guy that's, that's chasing Dylan Carlson um, in terms of where people are actually going to take him. But I just I, I'm okay with having one guy like Kelnick, one guy like Franco. You can't have more than that in redraft because it will absolutely ruin you waiting for those guys to come up. You'll you'll want to wait longer than you should to drop them if they don't get the call right away. 
It is a miserable experience. It's fun on draft day, and then it's miserable every Sunday for the first four to six Sundays while you sit there and cut somebody else instead and leave your roster playing short uh, all season long. Uh, Anybody else in the outfield grabbing your attention, either late flyers, bounce back candidates, really any any type of outfielder that you feel like we should we should bring up? Um, you know, I, I just wanted to bring up that 650 OPS line. That's kind of, uh, you know, you need to, you need to be able to put up better than 650 OPS to really keep your regular job in the big leagues. Um, Miles Straw and Victor Reyes and Leody Tavares are all, um, at that 650 level one, two, or three of these guys will lose their jobs this year. And, so therefore put them in a group. I guess we're, this is the grouping podcast, put them in a group and, and take the cheapest one, you know, um, I, you can't not take them because steals are that rare. So like I I think we had it down to like about 18 players that are going to have better than a 650 OPS and uh, more than 15 steals. I don't even know if you can populate your whole team with enough steals just based on picking from those 18 players. So, we're all going to have some of these guys on our list and you just have to pick, pick the right one. I don't know. I can't really speak to any of them being amazing. Um, straw. They're all very similar, just no power, not much patience and uh, a lot of speed. I think maybe the Astros are the most stuck with straw. I think they're going to do something to not have to play him very often. I keep thinking that they're going to sign JBJ, dude. Makes sense based on their needs, yeah. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Nick Solak shows up, uh, but we've talked about him a fair amount. Um, Sam Hilliard, I just want to give some love to him. I I think that even with that batting average as a Coors player, I mean, even with that batting average and strikeout rate as a Coors, play, Coors player, he can he can survive, and he's a very nice uh, option to have on your bench if you have any sort of flexibility when when to play and when not. Um, I feel like that on-off switch is pretty easy to to figure out. It's not something you have to bang your head. Is he playing a course this week? Okay, then you can play him. Um, and then I have some love for Gregory Polanco. Um, you know, he's in that. Uh, he's barely in that that window when it comes to um, being young enough that you can believe the projected bounce back. So, 29 years old, uh, projected for 24 homers and 10 stolen bases by the bad X. Not with a great batting average, but. He's also had a bunch of years with a 250 batting average. I think he could maybe get back to that level. So, you know, Gregor Polanco is another one of those guys who's ending up on my teams. Yeah, going really late. If it doesn't work out, he's an easy drop. But I think there's a good chance you end up pretty happy with him as one of your last picks with an ADP just outside the top 450 right now. Hopefully, we got to all the outfielders that you're interested in. If we didn't, drop us a line. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. If you want to check out our rankings, you can check out Eno's pitching rankings. You can check out all the rankings I put out. Theathletic.com slash rates and barrels gets you a subscription for just $3.99 a month to start. It's the best deal we have going right now. Thank you to the many of you who've taken the time to subscribe. If you got a minute to give us a nice rating and review, we'd appreciate that. If you're watching us on YouTube, welcome. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button on the video, even though it's really mostly just us staring into the camera and making weird faces. We really appreciate those of you who've jumped on board and found our podcast that way. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. 